So let's settle in. And for those who are here for the first time, uh, we sit for 45 minutes, or we'll sit for 35 minutes this morning. And uh, then we have a little bit of movement, and, uh, and then we reflect on the Dharma together. Hmm. So notice if there is uh, what kind of energy is coursing through your body, mind, and heart. Is it activated? Is it a little tamped down? How are you feeling? Are you feeling sad, happy, in between? Something someone said irritated you and is there a um, residual? Or you got great news and there's a residual of that? What's actually happening in the heart? And is there a story going through the mind? Perhaps something we forgot to do, or that's hanging over our heads, or it's something that we want, or something we don't want, something someone said, something you heard this morning, saw, and a story. And can you let all of those reflections on the state of mind and heart flow through as if you are a river of experience so that nothing gets dammed up. Thoughts come and go. Moods of the mind even come and go. If we don't grasp or push away their natural journey is to arise and pass, arise and pass. So we can allow that. And what is the state of the body? A little pain here, a discomfort there, a tingling and a joy elsewhere. What is the state of the body from the crown of the head down through the face and the neck, chest, the shoulders, the arms, the ribs, the spine, the back, the belly, as slowly or as quickly as you want to move through the body down through the hips and the genital area, the thighs, the knees, the calves, the ankles, the feet, and the hands. How are the muscles of your face? And is there a tightness anywhere in the body? Maybe around the shoulders or the back? neck, and again not pushing away, but just noticing, hmm, tight, perhaps unpleasant, so we're allowing thoughts, emotions, and body sensations 
to arise and pass away, self-liberating. Nothing we have to do or make happen. Just establishing a dignified posture so that we can enter into our meditative state, which isn't to be confused with a state of indifference or a state of stasis, but a state of complete aliveness that is here and present for what is true in all of the centers of our being, the mind, the heart, and the body, allowing the attention to come to rest on the breath. But again, that's not a static state because the breath is moving and so our attention receives that movement. The mind itself is steady so that what is moving can move through and allowing in the beginning the breath to be a little bit deeper so that we bring the whole organism into a state of uh, some tranquility, but that's a ground of tranquility that may even be receiving agitation or restlessness so that nothing is outside or unacceptable to our practice. So allowing the breath to be our anchor of attention so that what is arising in experience becomes clear as the attention receives the movement of breath. And we let what is happening stay in the background, whether it's sound, thought, images in the mind, sensations in the body unless one of those experiences becomes predominant and pulls the attention. When it does, notice that there is one of the six senses that's being activated. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. And rather than becoming embroiled or enthralled in that sense experience, to just notice which sense experience is happening. And from that place, one can understand the movement of that experience, that it begins, has a middle, and ends. And when it ends, coming back to the breath, and proceeding in that way, allowing again the background experiences to be background experiences until they assert themselves into predominance. If it's helpful, you can make a, sh a very silent note in the mind of hearing, or thinking, or smelling, or tasting, or touching, just to stay connected 
to that experience. If that's helpful, it may not be helpful, in which case, don't worry. If you find that your effort is one of pushing or striving, see if you can allow a more gentle energy to come forth. If you find that your effort is weak and that the mind is simply wandering, then make a smaller, a, a larger effort, but not one that turns into striving or pushing, so that we're constantly balancing the effort that we use to stay present, to be here in this dignified and easeful posture. few announcements and then we can do our Dharma reflection together. Um, there are quite a, October is quite filled with Dharma events, which is lucky us. <clears throat> There's a October potluck on Friday, October 10th, it's this Friday. Uh, Sandra Weinberg, one of our co-founders, will be leading a day of silence on the 12th. That's next Saturday. Um, Elaine Rettholz, one of our teachers, will be doing a, um, a course starting on October 17th on interpersonal mindfulness, um, which is wonderful because we do a lot of practice by ourselves, you know, and then we get into so much trouble when we another person appears on the scene. <laughs> we're great when we're by ourselves, right? Messy people always seem to come into our lives. So um, so this is a, a beautiful way of working with what, how, how it is to be in interpersonal relationship, in relationship. Uh, Bill Woodson and Dara Williams, two really wonderful um, members of our Sangha and Dara is a teacher in training, a retreat teacher in training. We'll be doing um, a workshop for people of color called Free at Last. Um, and it's always a, that's always a wonderful workshop if you're interested in, um, in exploring relationships on individual and group levels with, to race, ethnicity, culture, and class and understanding how to integrate the wisdom of the Dharma into um, those understandings and to look at how contemplative practices um, help to free us from suffering. Uh, George Pitagorsky, one of our teachers, I'll wait for that to finish. 
hopefully nobody is in too much distress with that. Uh, George Pitagorsky will be doing a, uh, a course on Right View, The Doorway to Freedom. Tracy, that's starting October 20th. Tracy Cochran, one of our um, new teachers, will be, who is a wonderful writer. She's a, the editor of um, Parabola magazine and has done a lot of uh, Dharma writing as well as just regular writing. She's really very skilled. We'll be doing a day-long workshop on uh, exploring writing as a way to find one's own path. So that, I'm sure that will be wonderful. And um, I'll be doing the monthly sitting and inquiry that I do one Tuesday night a month on October the 28th. So you don't have any excuses, because there's a lot offered. And the one thing I didn't mention is that there's an event volunteer training on Sunday, October 19th. If you would like to um, volunteer for New York Insight, as most of you probably already know, um, we run on uh, the generosity of our uh, our yogis, our students, and part of that is um, that the the uh, the center is staffed by only two paid two paid uh, employees: our director and executive, our executive director and deputy director, and everyone else here, including John. Thank you for your service today. Our volunteers, the the bookkeeping, the um, the event management, the cleaning of the center. Um, what uh, We use people, so many talents of the people who come here and enjoy the benefits of what is offered here to help run the center. What's the matter? Mike. The mic? Oh, Mike. Hi. Yes, I didn't realize. Sorry. So John and Mike. And... Uh, so if you feel drawn to offering whatever talent you have um, in whatever way, we can use you. And uh, we certainly need people like John and Mike to help with uh, events. So if you would like to do that and you've never done that before, we have a training on October the 19th. And that is part of... Um, the practice that we encourage of uh, generosity here at New York Insight, which we have, um, which it's amazing because it's a 17-year-old organization, and we founded it on um, a string and a can, <laughs> essentially. And I love to tell the story of the Buddha buggy. Before we had this center, physical center, we had a Buddha buggy that we called it, Buddha buggy, which was a suitcase. New York's insight was essentially a rolling suitcase with a Buddha, a cloth, a vase, and a candle. And we rented spaces for events. And in those days also, you know, we had a lot of big-name teachers come because people really wanted to. Joseph Goldstein and Sharon and Jack Cornfield um, all wanted to support uh, having a center such as this in New York. And so they would come and offer teachings and, you know, we'd have 500 people and, and all of that. And, and over the years it's morphed. It's become 
what it is today, and and it's this uh, really vibrant place in in the center of New York where you can come and always feel that there is some peace, a peaceful refuge, we call it. We have open hours uh, every day from 2 to 6, every weekday, so you can always come here if you need a place to sit. And uh, and we pay rent. We pay $115,000 a year in rent because it's just the reality of New York City. Uh, it's not what we paid when we first started. And we had a lot of people on the board who were very afraid of even getting a space. Um, but that was 10 years ago, and we're still here. And we're here because you have essentially taken New York Insight into your hearts and supported it in whatever way you can, whether it's with your time or your talent or your money. And uh, the teachers, we, we all come to sittings like this and um, we don't get paid by New York Insight. We essentially get paid by you. And it's a kind of wonderful um, exchange, but it's an exchange not of, um, you're giving me this and I think it's worth that, but it's more of a heart, um, a heart relationship in which um, you're moved to give. You're not compelled to give. We're not saying we have this and it's worth that, so pay us this. And it's a beautiful um, shift of relationship to uh, resources and to how open our hearts can be. And so I invite you to um, to essentially join in this beautiful practice that we've encouraged from uh, the time we opened in 1997 to now. And you see the you see the magic of it. And uh, by magic, I don't mean that it's magic, but that there is a, there is a beauty to um, living in this in the middle of this very you know New York City is like the capital of capitalism right now and um, we live in a we live in a culture and in a world where um, there's there's a there's a, a movement towards materialism that's really quite oppressive and so to be able to live in a in an environment with like-minded people in which we practice something slightly different, which is the opening of the heart to uh, what is valuable, the opening of the heart and the wish, the movement of the heart to want to support something that's valuable. So uh, we have a box in the back if on your way out uh, I hope you'll be moved to support the center in whatever way you can. Everybody's resources are different. Um, you know, some people can give a thousand dollars, and it's you know it's a drop in the bucket. Other people can give five dollars, and it's really significant. So it's not about. And people ask me all the time, like, "What's the right amount?" And I know we have suggested donations. Um, because so many people wanted to know that. But I still think that giving and the movement of the heart towards 
generosity, the spirit of generosity, is one of the most worthwhile um, qualities of heart to develop, because without it we're lost. We're lost as individual human beings, and we're lost as a culture, we're lost as a society, we're lost as a world, if we just want to get and never give. So this is a worthwhile practice, and um, I hope you'll feel invited to participate in it. And speaking of generosity, um, I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about um, the paramis as a practice. And as you all know, there's a, you know, Buddhism has a bad rap, which is that it's just full of lists and you got to, you know, memorize the lists and how you how will you ever figure out what what's what, right? But if we remember that it was an oral tradition, and in that oral tradition, um, the way to organize the memory was to create lists, right? And so the paramis is one of those lists. And parami, I, I shouldn't pluralize it because it's an English, putting an S on it is an English thing. Parami really is all of the ten perfections. Um, so the parami are uh, a way of remembering, there are ten of them, and it's a way of remembering the qualities of heart that uh, we develop when we talk about awakening or enlightenment, that these ten parami are actually the qualities that we can develop in our life, not just sitting on a cushion, that lead us to awakening. And so many of these practices, whether it's parami or the seven factors of awakening, or the four Brahma-viharas, or learning about the five hindrances, whatever the, whatever the list is, usually if you look at it, you can see that it's path, what we do, how we practice, and it's fruit. It's that by, I'm going to let those, I'm going to let us enjoy those. That's the end of the service. So it's path and fruit. It's, it's how we practice, the qualities that we practice um, opening to, the qualities that we practice manifesting. And I, I use that language because these are not, you know, so much of the time when we think about qualities like this, we think that it's something that we have to get. Right, that it's some external thing that everybody else has and that we're the poor ones who don't have it. But actually, we do have these qualities. And sometimes the heart doesn't open to them. And so our practice is really how we open to these qualities in our lives. And in opening to these qualities, they become the fruit of our practice. So it's path and fruit. So the story goes that um, 
in the Buddhas in a hundred thousand Mahakalpas ago. And a Mahakalpa is the amount of time it would take for a bird with a silk scarf in its beak to fly across um, Mount Everest once every century and wear down Mount Everest by touching it with that silk scarf. That's one Mahakalpa. So it's said that it takes 100,000 Mahakalpas for these qualities to be developed. And the story goes that um, there was a previous Buddha before Gautama um, named Dipankara. And, but before he was a Buddha, the, the Buddha of his time came into his town. And uh, as he was, as the Buddha stepped out of his, whatever, whether it was his horse or, I don't know if they had carriages in those days, Dipankara threw down his coat because he was so moved by the presence of this being. He threw down his coat. And uh, the, the Buddha stepped on the coat, and as he did, Dipankara looked up and he felt the presence of this Buddha. And he had a vow right then and there, a determination, a resolve, that he too would become a Buddha, that he would, be, he would uh, attain the qualities of this Buddha that he was seeing. And it's said that at that moment, the Buddha also saw Dipankara's aspiration and um, predicted that Dipankara would indeed um, attain Buddhahood and that it would take him 100,000 Mahakalpas. So that's our... And the way that he would attain these Buddhahood is by... Uh, um, attaining these qualities, the, the manifestation of these qualities in his being. So I kind of like the idea of a hundred thousand Mahakalpas because it means no pressure. <laughs> right? You got time, kid. No problem. And so we are able over <clears throat> these hundred thousand Mahakalpas to practice as diligently as we can to attain these ten um, qualities, and what are they? So generosity, dana, the spirit of giving that I was just speaking about, is the first one. The second is integrity or virtue. The third is renunciation. The fourth is wisdom. The fifth is vitality. The sixth is truthfulness. The seventh is patience. The eighth is determination or resolve, however you'd like to. The Pali word is aditana, and some people like resolve better, but you'll see determination most of the time. The ninth is loving kindness or loving friendliness, the translation of metta. And the tenth is equanimity, the translation of upeka. And as you can imagine, each of these qualities 
deserves their own Dharma talk. But I'm going to go through them relatively swiftly, not rapidly, swiftly, just to give you a taste of, of these qualities. Because I think they're all worth uh, practicing. And of course, each of them will come up um, in, in different areas of your life, in different situations. But if you have them in your mind, what I've found for myself, I love these, I love this, these qualities and I love this practice of parami because it's a way of bridging uh, your practice from the cushion where what happens is your heart becomes open and still and tranquil, calm. You get a measure of concentration. And so it's a bridge from that and, and hopefully some insight because when the mind gets quiet, we begin to notice the characteristics of existence and of phenomena, which are impermanence and selflessness and how things are always unsatisfactory, no matter how, you know, how much we kind of try to cushion our lives, something always goes askew, right? So it's these three characteristics. Eventually, if you allow the mind to really settle down and uh, be somewhat still, The mind is never going to be completely still except in very specific circumstances. You begin to see these three characteristics. And as we begin to see these three characteristics, we have some basis to get up off of our cushions and to act in the world according to that wisdom, according to that understanding of how things truly are. So these ten parami are a way of supporting that practice off the cushion. How do we open our hearts in generosity? How do we give when everything in us screams that we want, that we want to have, that we want to get, that we don't have enough, that we don't, uh, we never get enough, that somehow it always eludes us, whatever it is, that we want? How do we open our hearts? It's partly the understanding that if we close our hearts in the act of giving, we cl- from the act of giving, that our hearts are closed. And so any expectation that we will receive must be puny. Because if we refuse to give, we are, we are denying the abundance that is the universe. We're denying that we actually get what we need. Now, it's a little hard to say that to people who are starving or to people who are oppressed or who seem to not have the opportunities that others have. And we know that this is the way our cultures, our world, our our societies are structured. So that there's a difference between the universal and the personal when it comes to uh, this generosity. And even though there is a way in which we may be in a position of uh, um, 
disadvantage for various reasons in our culture, there are still ways in which, as human beings, when we relate to each other, there can be a spirit of generosity. And I know that because I'm from Jamaica. And I know that in Jamaica, the way it's a poor, it's a poor society, mostly. And that I know that the way that we survive there in that culture, at least when I was there, which was a long time ago, so things may have changed. But I, but I know that the way we survived was by helping each other. That if somebody did a harvest of their corn, the whole community would share in that. You know, they'd knock on your door and say, I, I harvested some corn today, here, here are a few heads of corn. Or if you saw somebody at a bus stop and you were driving a car, you'd stop. Say, come on in, where are you going? Right? I'll give you a ride. Or if you saw somebody on the street who needed something and you had it to give, you'd give it. And that's the way people survived, even in a very poor culture. So that when we talk about giving, we're not talking about grand gestures or having so much that you have excess. Because the spirit of generosity really speaks to, uh, and the Buddha talked about this, different levels of giving. There's kingly giving, where you give away the best of what you have. Right? There's brotherly giving, when you kind of, you know, equivocate about, well, you know, eh, I really like it, maybe I'll keep it this time and give it to you in five months. Right? I'll hold it for a little while. And there's, there's also giving that's kind, that feels kind of um, forced. You know, I'll give because people are looking at me, right? And so I'll look good if, I, if I'm generous. This quality of giving, the Buddha never um, taught anyone meditation or, or gave them any teachings until he first made sure that they understood the value of giving. And what he said was, if you knew what I knew about generosity and giving, you would not sit down to one meal without sharing it. Wow. It's a little hard in our culture, right, to find somebody who you can share it with. And my husband's here, and I'm sure he won't mind my telling you of when he was working on Wall Street, he would go into um, City Hall Park and find people who were homeless or, you know, looked as if they needed food. And he'd buy a sandwich and, you know, or two and, and hand them out. And he tried to hand a, hand a sandwich to someone one day, and he wasn't a homeless person who got very mad, right? And there's a story of this... Uh, teacher in, uh, I think she was in Minneapolis, who, was, who started making sandwiches for the homeless. And people, um, and so there was a big television feature about her. And people got really, you know, it was really exciting because she was 
making sandwiches every day. She was the principal of a school, and yet she would find time to make like a hundred sandwiches and find people in her community who needed food. And so after this television thing, people started sending her checks, right, to support her sandwiches. And what did she do with the checks? She sent them back with a note that said, make your own damn sandwiches. Right? So to me, that's a really beautiful example that it's not about, you know, doing something easy, writing a check, but really thinking about what is needed and seeing, is this something that I can help? Is this something I can provide? And in this way, there is a tremendous joy that comes, a tremendous opening that comes in the heart. Try it just for a week or a day. Walk around the city and look to see if there's anybody in need. And it doesn't have to be money or sandwiches. It can be anything. Somebody who needs help across the street. But vow every morning, today I'm going to be generous. I'm going to develop my, I'm going to really develop this muscle for generosity. And part of this uh, generosity moves into the second one of integrity. And I'm never going to finish before we're done. So integrity really comes from generosity. And you'll notice that, there, that the Buddhas all have different mudras. So this is, this is what's called the earth-witnessing mudra, where the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, when Mara asked him if he had a... He thought, he, who was he to sit and think that he could be free? He touched the earth to witness. And Prajnaparamita here, who is the mother of all Buddhas, She's in the teaching mudra. And the walking Buddha over there has his hand out. And that's the mudra of fearlessness, abhaya. And that's what you offer. And, and of course, that mudra, I just, I, somebody connected for me um, that and how in the... Um, in the early um, Cowboys and Indians film, they used to have the, the, the Indians saying how, right? But that was, a, that was like the mudra, the fearlessness mudra, which was an offering to show that there wasn't a weapon in the hand. And this fearlessness mudra is essentially one that says, I am a person who is practicing integrity and you have absolutely nothing to fear from me. That I will be someone whose word you can trust because I won't lie to you. That I have absolutely no desire to harm you. That I will not use um, alcohol or drugs in a way that will cloud the mind and make you have something to fear from me that I will not use sexuality in a way that harms, and that I won't steal from you 
whatever is yours, I have no desire to take. And so we offer this practice of integrity, those, those five precepts that are like the, the minimum, if you want to call yourself any kind of practicing Buddhist, or even if you just don't want to call yourself anything, but you actually want to live in alignment with uh, these practices, and if you want to really settle down into concentration, the mind has to be joyous. The mind cannot be in any way fearful or depressed. And usually, if we're not practicing with integrity, the mind will not be joyful. It will be scared. We will be discovered, we'll find out, or there's this kind of hatefulness or greed that comes with wanting to steal or wanting to harm. So, so integrity comes completely out of generosity. It comes out of that spirit of generosity of wanting to offer this fearlessness. And the third is renunciation, where from this spirit of integrity, we are able to renounce, and we're able to renounce hatred and greed. We're able to renounce uh, an attachment to the outcome of anything. That one's hard. And I know when we say renunciation, people get really crazy, right? Because we're in a culture that really tells us we should have whatever we want and more of it, as much of it as we possibly can have before we get sick of it. But there's a pleasure and a joy in saying, no, I won't do that. This environmental crisis that we're in essentially asks us to really practice renunciation. And in in a way, that also brings a joyous mind because it's an offering to our whole world. Can we renounce all of the ways in which the earth is getting choked by its carbon emissions? Can we actually live in harmony with the well-being and the health of the earth. So that comes in a way and under this, this quality of renunciation. How will we find ways to stop this bleeding of the earth? How will we find ways to stop this degradation of the earth? Other than not only asking our leaders or even pressuring them to do what's necessary. But each one of us also has a responsibility. And this quality of renunciation can be practiced quite wonderfully as a way of offering generously to live in integrity with Mother Earth who provides us with this beautiful oxygen that we must breathe in. And of course, the wisdom of practice comes from those three characteristics that I mentioned before, but also understanding our motivations and our intentions in how we live. 
So can we have an understanding of our interconnectedness? I love this from um, Albert Einstein. He says, a human being is a part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He said he, but I'm going to say she, experiences herself, her thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And from Martin Luther King, all life is interrelated. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. How eloquent is that? So wisdom, wisdom allows us to understand who we are to, as, a, as a race of humans together. Yes, we are distinct in race and class and religion and uh, color and all, all kinds of education and economics, and we, we can make all of those distinctions. And yet we know that 99.999% of our DNA is exactly the same. Does that blow your mind? That it's just like 0.01% of our DNA that causes us to have blue eyes or white skin or, or, or brown skin or um, that we're tall or short or dark hair or blonde hair. So this idea that we're separate and we're different and, you know, we can never come together. Well, we are together. We don't have to come together. So this wisdom and understanding our intentions. Do we have an intention of goodwill? Harmlessness. And that goes back to integrity. And the vitality, the fifth, to, um, to power our practice and to know what is uh, wholesome and what is unwholesome, what is skillful and what is unskillful, and to move our energy towards what is wholesome and skillful and away from what is unwholesome and unskillful. And not in a pushing, striving way, but in an open and relaxed way. So vitality doesn't mean we're like pushing and making stuff happen, but that we're balancing our energy in such a way that whatever practice we're doing is done wholeheartedly. And the sixth is truthfulness. 
which ties back to integrity, that we are, first of all, true to ourselves, that we always tell ourselves the truth. And that's one of the things I love about Buddhist practice, is that it really encourages us to look very deeply into what is true and to never, ever, ever lie to yourself. Because the whole structure falls apart if we do. If we don't know what's true, we can't act skillfully in response. So what are the screens that um, hold you back from seeing the truth? Usually, it comes right back to the Four Noble Truths and to the, to the suffering and the end of suffering. We are held back from seeing the truth because we're clinging. We're clinging to some illusion about what is true. Somehow we've told ourselves a story that this is what's going to make me happy. And we could die before we let go of that idea. And we don't stop to examine what is valuable, what is real, what is true. And this meditation practice is the practice that actually trains us to do that. So that if we're looking closely at the processes of mind, heart, and body, As the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body contains all of the world, the mountains and rivers, pine trees. So if we know what's true in here, we know what's true, quote, out there, because internal and external are not separate. Because how we see things determines what the world looks like. What our perspective is, what our view is, tells us how we're going to see the world. And you know it, because you've, you've, you've woken up with, in a bad mood, and all day people just annoy the hell out of you, right? They're doing something, but actually it's you. You're bringing that to the world, and so that's what the world reflects back. So we tell ourselves the truth. And the seventh is patience, probably for many people the hardest one. It's loving the waiting and being filled with kindness while we wait. Tough. You know, this thing of God grant me patience right away, right? Is what we want, right? We want it now. And we're a culture that's very focused on now, unfortunately not on the present moment, just on short-term gain. So we don't want to wait for anything. And that's how we've gotten to this problem with the environment. And that's how we've gotten to this problem with killing each other all over the world. Because we don't want to 
wait for things to resolve. We don't want to put in the energy to speak to each other to resolve conflict. So instead we pick up arms and we do that not only actually but symbolically. Look at your own life and all of the ways in which you do that. We all do it. We go to war with the customer service lady, right? Because she's not giving us what we want. We go to war with our neighbor because we don't like, you know, how they, the music they play. And we don't have the patience to wait. To wait without hope, as T.S. Eliot says, because hope would be of the wrong thing. Can we wait? And if we're in the supermarket on a line, and it's a long line, can you just wait and say metta? Or do you stand there kind of... Is gonna, you know. The story of a guy coming back from uh, Iraq and went into a um, grocery store to buy groceries, and the woman ahead of him, um, you know, has a baby, and she stops and they, she's talking to the cashier and there and the cashier is you know tickling the baby's chin and he's you know like all right you know let's move on here we i need to get my stuff and get out of here and he gets to the front of the line and he real and he starts talking to the cashier and he realizes that she's um a widow of a of another serviceman and the baby was actually her baby and it was her mother bringing the baby because she had to work. and So the mother brings the baby during the day just so that she can connect with her child. So we never know what the story is that we're so impatiently um, at the world to give us what we want and to give it to us now. And what would it look like for your heart to actually be open to waiting. How would that feel? And the ninth is metta, loving friendliness. This quality that wishes well for, for oneself, for one's loved ones, for one's enemies, for the whole world without distinction the quality of kindness and friendliness that allows the heart to befriend not only every being, but every situation. Sounds idealistic, right? But not really. It's possible. And it's possible by practice. All of these qualities are possible by practice. Because we can actually when we find ourselves feeling hostile or 
impatient or wanting things to happen in a different way or wanting a different result. We can remember. That's what these pa- this parami practice is about. It's remembering right in that moment of deep hostility or impatience or lying to ourselves. Oh, I don't have to do it that way. There's a way in which I can respond to and relate to the situations in my life that gives me more space and gives everyone else around me more space. And so, of course, most of you probably already know we have a practice for metta in which we wish well-being, peace, happiness, safety, health, and ease to a, to a progression of people starting with ourselves, going out to a benefactor, someone who's been good to us in our lives, to a dear friend, to someone who we've seen but we've overlooked, a neutral person, and then to what we call, what the texts call the enemy, but is actually um, a difficult person. And it's beautiful in the Visuddhimagga, which is the path of purification, one of the old texts. It tells us that the way that we um, prepare for this practice of metta is by um, reflecting on the disadvantages of hatred and the benefits of patience. It's kind of a nice conjunction hatred and patience. I, one would expect that you'd say the, be, the disadvantages of hatred and the benefits of love. But no, he said patience. Buddha Gosa, the writer of this text. So loving kindness or loving friendliness, befriending our environment, befriending the earth on which we live, befriending ourselves and befriending every being. And then the tenth, the last one, is equanimity. Ah, you didn't think I'd get to it, did you? I think of equanimity as kind of the queen of all of these qualities. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening also. It's the last of the four Brahma-viharas, so it comes on three lists. So you pay attention when something comes in three lists. And it's this quality of mind and heart that is balanced, that understands that life contains vicissitudes. There are eight of them, according to the Buddha. Gain and loss, pain and pleasure. I'm losing a a pair. Um, Fame and disrepute, I'll think of the fourth one. But you get the idea, is that all kinds of experiences come to us, right? That are positive and negative in our view. And that because we understand deeply coming back to wisdom, the um, quality of karma, which actually means action in Sanskrit or kama in Pali, means action, that every action has a consequence. 
and that our whole lives, the experience of our lives, are made up by these actions that we do, whether it's mental actions, verbal actions, or physical actions. That's what we do. And so whatever we do, and whatever the quality of those actions are, they are conditions that have, and causes that have effects. And we go spinning around according to the causes and effects that we're constantly setting down and receiving. And if we understand that, praise and blame was the fourth, uh, the fourth pair of the vicissitudes. If we understand that, then when the negative side of the, as we see it, the negative side of the ledger, the loss, the displeasure, the blame, and the disrepute come, we don't feel victimized we, because we understand karma deeply. And so equanimity means that we can be steady no matter what the conditions are that are obtaining in this moment. We're steady. And it's not a state of indifference. It's not a state of, um, oh, well, it's just karma. No, it's an alive state that understands what's happening and responds to what's happening appropriately, but is not thrown off. The balance of our being is not thrown off. And we're not thrown off in exuberance when something positive happens either. When we get pleasure or fame or praise. But we accept it all as the quality of karma. So those are the ten parami. And I'm glad that I took the time to do it, even though we don't have too much time to speak to each other. Because I think that these are qualities that you can actually use in your life. Pay attention to them. Pay attention to what pulls you towards um, not manifesting that in your life. And then make the effort to manifest it and see what happens. See how the karma actually works. See how when we're generous, what happens. And we can all tell stories of how generosity gets returned to us. Maybe not in the situation, in a precise situation, but elsewhere. And how being closed or tight or stingy also has its own ramifications and results. Or take any of these paramis and really reflect on them. Don't just say, oh, it's a list of stuff. But take one, one that is particularly difficult for you. And do that as your practice for the next year. You have time. Lots of time. No problem. Don't worry about it. You don't have to get them all. Just one. You have a hundred thousand mahakalpas to do this. So take one mahakalpa. So that's 10,000 mahakalpas per parami. Right? Lots of time. So thank you. 
So we have just a couple of minutes if there's anything burning for anyone. Yes. What's your name? Wendy. Wendy. Is this being recorded? Okay, so. Hello. Hi. Uh, hi, I'm Wendy. Um, my question is about, so all of us, we have like, you know, certain experiences and memories in the past, right? We um, have experiences and... Maybe like not so good experiences in the past. And then, you know, you have like these memories. So what happens like now in the present moment, I realize for myself, I, n- I never re- have this type of awareness is something happens, then boom, it triggers like it it's not like triggered the well i always have the memories that like they're like kind of back in my mind but it triggers some type it's like a tremendous amount of negative thoughts and fears mm-hmm. and then i was talking to some of my friends they that people were saying well it's what you have experienced becomes part of you i guess this is like really true now i'm seeing it but it's like how do we reroute our mind to like overcome these fears not let these like little triggers you know like poor um hold us back just because Mm -hmm. like what happened in the past Mm -hmm. and these like past memories yeah Yeah. so you know if it's trauma then you probably actually need professional work with with trauma because trauma gets um buried in the body and there are some beautiful ways now of working with trauma that's very um, very much in harmony with with practice so there's a there's a um, a whole school called uh, somatic experiencing that um, really is very it's not talk therapy it's actually working with the body and the trauma in the body so if it's trauma, that's what I would I would say that it really that sometimes needs um, a lot of work, but not it's not like years and years and years. It's really amazing how efficient it can be, and with other memories and ways of um, working with uh, what's true in your own um, life is uh, is. It's not something that's going to get... Sometimes it is, but not, it's not always something that you can just dismiss. Um, what I've found is that when something difficult comes up from the past, and, or, my, or I'm, I'm triggered, to acknowledge it. To acknowledge this is past. This is not present. So somebody says something and I can feel my mind and my whole emotional body wanting to react to actually something that happened five years ago or ten years ago or thirty years ago or forty years ago. And that's part of truthfulness, is to be able to stop and even apologize to the person that you've reacted with, but to work internally with, with what your own reactions are, to be truthful about them, and to, to, under, to try to understand what is, what's triggering. And it's not that that's necessarily going to 
make something shift right away, but over time it does. If each time you get triggered, you really get it. And, and, it does, and sometimes it doesn't even happen in the moment. Sometimes it's like a day later you think, oh gosh, I'm really sorry I you know, blew up, or I did this, or I did that, or I took it that way. And if, if I discover that in myself, I'll call the person and say, I'm really sorry I said what I said, right? And then to work with my own internal um, process to understand how that happens. And, you know, I've done a lot of work in retreats with past experiences, and sometimes they've arisen spontaneously, even stuff I didn't remember. And sometimes I actually work with something. I specifically say I'm going to work with this during a retreat. And I find that being away from the world, you know, from the hustle bustle of the world, and being in a quiet space and a quiet place where I can sustain my meditation practice, that things open up and I see them more clearly and I see them more deeply. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they spontaneously heal, although sometimes they do but that it's a journey, and I recognize it as a journey. Um, And, you know, the quality of patience is really important with that, being patient with yourself. That and metta and equanimity are three qualities that you can really practice with, with those kinds of uh, triggering experiences. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope that's helpful. Okay, that's all we have time for. I'm sorry. So let's finish by... um, Thank you for your question, Wendy. So let's just do a tiny bit of metta to close. So... Have be as relaxed as you possibly can in your body, be at ease. And just bring forth an image of yourself at your most lovable. Maybe it was when you were a young child, maybe it's actually right now, or any time in between. Put that image in your heart. and feeling that in your whole body, how it is to be you. Appreciate that, all the gifts you bring. And even if you think that you don't bring any gifts, think about some loved one who would be devastated if you didn't exist on this world, on this earth. And in the context of this appreciation of who you are, Can you wish yourself complete safety? May I be really safe? It's a spirit of friendliness and coming close. May I be safe. May I be happy and peaceful. May I be healthy and strong of body. And these are not empty phrases, but they have meaning. And may I be at complete ease.
free from suffering, journeying to freedom. And let that wish for yourself radiate out into all four quarters of the world, encompassing every being who lives on this planet and all of the galaxies beyond. Can we wish for the good health, for the peace, for the safety, and for the happiness of every being everywhere without exception? That same love that a mother has for her child. Wishing may all beings live in gladness and in safety and be at ease. Feel that friendliness, that warmth, and take it out into the streets of New York and spread it, infect New York with friendliness. Thank you so much for your attention today and your practice. Travel safely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.